0: Sure back, right? Thank you. Uh, so since Todd queued up that I told a story to another group, I can't now not tell it uh, to this group. So I will uh, I'll be obedient to that. Um, and then and then I want to speak on some things about identity. And I think it'll tie into the story as well. So I normally people know, you know, when you're a Christian, people normally ask the question like, oh, well, when did you get saved? Right, and a lot of people had a revival or a church meeting and they remember getting in a baptismal pool, again baptized, and you know, may you may have got, you know, saved at camp and I went to a leadership lab where I was at Fort Wilderness, I watched a young man get baptized in the Spider Lake River just a little while ago. Um, so for me, my my story when people ask me when did you get saved? and I'm like, Well, I was atheist when I got to college and in the first semester of my freshman year, I got saved. And so that's normally the story. And I, you know, I can talk about miraculous things and God healing my knees and speaking to me directly and it, and it changing the, 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 the path of my life from that point forward. Um, but, you know, coming up here, I was like, well, God, what do you want me to share? Like, right. And you know, Todd asked me to speak about um, issues regarding race. Um, so to step back a bit. My name is Pastor Roy. So if anyone wants to Google me after this, I've been a Christian rap artist for 18 years. Um, I have a podcast. I actually have two. Um, So it's on Spotify and whatever else. Um, If you just Google my name, Roy Dockery, everyone's found it very easy to find a lot of information. So there's like a free book on my website and links to all of my podcasts and music is on iTunes and Spotify entitled and. and everything else as well. And look, like everyone just immediately see how I immediately got cooler, right? Like, right there, everyone's like, "Hold on, like, yes, I don't know why Todd knows a rapper. I have no idea." Um, even to- it-, it took a while. It was like a year after, and Todd was like, "You do music?" Because like we met. Because I'm also a healthcare executive and, and some other weird stuff. Um, so a lot of combination, and we'll get to that when we talk about identity. Um, but sharing that story, and then so. The weird thing for me is that, you know, when you when you have like as an adult, I grew up in the church. So I grew up in the church. My grandmother went to church on both sides of my family, on my mother's side, my father's side. Um, So I grew up what I would consider like a social Christian environment. People around me went to church Um, after church. People didn't really talk much about God. There was no real discipleship in our family. Right. Like we were kind of people who attended church. Right. My our grand, my grandmothers on both sides were like the prayer warriors, the event, you know, the uh, the evangelists. They were the ones that were super busy. They kind of held that spiritual position of leadership within our church. And then everybody else just kind of attended. So growing up, um, I grew up in New Haven, Connecticut, after my parents got divorced when I was about two. um, I lived in, you know, we went from Japan to New Haven. My father was in the Air Force. So when they separated, my mom went back to Connecticut where her family was. And I was telling the other group, my best friend in elementary school was a, was a kid named Leonardo. And looking back as I was thinking about what to discuss, and I'm like thinking about friendships and my story and, and how like racism has presented itself and evolved throughout my life. When I was in elementary school, my best friend was a little white kid named Leonardo. He was Jewish, he you know had a family, he was from, he was from New Haven, and we were friends because we both loved Ninja Turtles. And that was it. Right. Like we were in school together. We loved Ninja Turtles. And I told the other group like his name was Leonardo and his favorite Ninja Turtle was Leonardo. My favorite Ninja Turtle was Donatello, because I've always been kind of a techie person, which is why I now work in robotics. But, you know, so like we, we immediately clicked and nothing about our friendship was based on our race. I didn't see Leonardo as a white kid. I'm sure Leonardo didn't see me as a black kid. We were just two kids in elementary school that loved Ninja Turtles. So then my, and so this is living in the Northeast, so different kind of cultural context, right? The Northeast Connecticut is a bit different. My mom gets remarried um, when I'm eight, eight years old, and we moved to Knoxville, Tennessee. So we moved to Tennessee, and within a week of me being in elementary school was the first time I was called the N-word to my face, um, and not the N-word used in rap lyrics, the N-word that ends with a G-E-R, um, that has a very historical negative context of being used as a derogatory term towards an entire group, or racial demographic of people, and I was called that by a young man who had on a black t-shirt, his name was Rocky, it had an orange pickup truck on it and a confederate flag. So since the first negative image I have in my mind, people can't tell me that the flag doesn't represent hate, because the first hateful thing I ever heard from a person was wearing a t-shirt with the flag on it. Um, So he called me the n-word, and then the weird thing is, is the classroom immediately split. There were no someone's water bottle went down. Um, It was Todd's, all right. So the class immediately split. So all the and then we only had, you know, it was in Tennessee, so we only had black and white kids in class. The black kids immediately got mad. And then when I say split, physically split. So the black kids immediately got mad and took like an offended position. And then all the white kids in our class defended the guy who said it. So at that point in my life, it was weird for me because before my friend Leonardo was my friend because we enjoyed Ninja Turtles now my identity became associated with people who would protect me because of what I look like, right? Because none of these people were my friends. I've only been in this school for like three or four days. I don't know any of you. We have no common interests. I don't know what cartoons you like to watch. I don't know if you like to draw. I have no idea what you like to do. But when somebody said something that was derogatory and offensive to me, and I don't even know why I was offended by it, right? I just knew I was, (laughs) and it hurt, and it made me angry. When the classroom split, now my identity was associated with me being black. So now I find safety in being black. So if there's a situation where somebody is threatening me, I'm only going to find safety with black people because no one who was white in the room, including the teacher, tried to defend me. So when we look at our identity and the way that that fragments, so what that wound up doing is it created an identity in me now where, like, okay, I have to find safety in being black. So as a minority, I have to look for and try to identify other people of color because if something happens, the probability is, is that no one who doesn't look like me is going to defend me. And like I told the other group, it's really weird being in a space where you're the only person who looks like you, right? It's really weird being a girl in a room full of guys, right? It's really weird It's really weird being a guy in a room full of girls. Like Our mind automatically looks for patterns to try to associate with things that we are familiar with. Right. Whether it's hair color, you always recognize the redhead, you recognize the blonde, you recognize the person who has hazel eyes or green eyes, especially if you have them. But like we're always looking for those patterns, but we don't realize how ingrained they become in our personality and who we are. So now as an eight or nine year old kid, I find my identity and my safety in being surrounded by people who look like me and having an inherent fear against people who don't look like me. And then what I realized growing up and the one thing I shared that I had never really thought about is that racism made me atheist because I was, I grew up in mostly black communities with black churches, right? And then I moved to the South and then I'm surrounded by people who consider themselves to be Christian, but regularly threaten my life, right? Like we had a neighbor who my brother found his daughter attractive, 16, my brother was 13, I think. Um, the girl was the same age as my brother. He thought she was cute. She was white. Her father said, if you talk to my daughter again, I will kill you. But we watched them get dressed every Sunday and go to church. Right. And then I lived in communities that were completely segregated. where There was a black church on this corner and there was a white church on this corner. And then I watched grandparents and people in my family praying to a picture of a white Jesus. But they live in poverty. Everyone around them is being arrested. Everyone around them is being killed. Um, you know, the crack epidemic was destroying families. And at some point, like, as I started to grow older, I started associating Christianity with, like, weakness and whiteness. And I'm like, I don't want anything to do with that. And I told them when I was 16 years old in college, I mean, in high school, I started studying religions because I had checked out. I was, like, 12 years old, 12 or 13, and my mom was like, you know, and like I said, my grand, I remember I said, like, our, my grandparents were the ones that had the religion. So go a generation down. My mom wasn't really that interested in going to church, so it was kind of optional for us. So if it wasn't in that generation, you make it optional for a 13 year old. I'm not going to church, right? So we would, I would, you know, they, they, we like, oh, you can go if you want to. If you don't, you don't. So I stopped going to church. In my, in my mind, I had it that I don't want anything to do with this system that allows people who have privilege to use their God to lord it over people who don't. So then I started studying world religions. I started studying philosophy. I said, just because I've always liked reading and I've always enjoyed learning new things. And then by the time I got 16, I had wrote something called a civil, social, moral conscious based on Christian morality. And I said that Christianity in America only exists to try to keep people from doing bad things and then offering them this figment, fake, eternal reward if they do good things. Because that's all I saw. I saw people that kind of held religion over people's head. But in reality, what I what I noticed is that I never actually saw Christ. Right. I saw people who were religious and I saw people who went to church and I saw people who prayed and who sung hymns. Because it's weird. When I started studying philosophy, I was like, I like Jesus. Even out of all of them, I studied like a lot of the world philosophies. And from a philosophy perspective, I agreed with Jesus, but I had never seen him. I'd never seen him in anybody's actions. I had never seen him in anybody's gatherings. And so even as I got older and I had a miraculous experience and I got saved and even over the last almost 20 years now of walking in my faith, there's always this constant struggle of what am I trying to be like? Right. So I know if you guys have been here for, for two weeks, so you had to turn in your phones like you left here in the middle of like a national crisis where it's like, are you are you liberal or are you conservative? Are you black lives matter? Are you all lives matter? Right? Like, do you care? Do you not care? Are you engaged? Are you not engaged? Are you going to protest or counter protest? And you and I'm sure you kind of all came in here with a question like, well, who am I? Right. Like, what is my identity? What do I identify with? I know what my friends are saying. I know what the entertainers and the social media influencers and the people that I listen to on TikTok are saying, because everyone's telling us what to be offended by. Everybody's telling us what we should participate in. Everybody's telling us what we should say, what we should do. Right. We're looking at our churches. We're looking at our parents. We're looking at the ministers and people that are in our life. And it's all of these questions like, what should I do? And the reality is adults are doing the same thing, right? I just had this conversation with adults who are on staff because the reality is, the question is, where is your identity, right? When you come across trying times, when you come across difficult situations, you have to look back and say, who am I, right? And whose am I? So it's like I made a song a couple of years ago, and I still haven't released it, and um, and everyone loves it because I have a song called I'm a Christian. And the chorus is I'm a Christian. um, And it was like they keep asking who I am, and I tell them, I'm a Christian. Occupation or description, I just tell him I'm a Christian. Nationality, ethnicity, I tell him I'm a Christian. Forget the hyphens in division. I just tell him I'm a Christian. Because even in the midst of going to protests, which Todd's seen some odd live Facebook videos where I'm in the middle of a protest, I can be at a protest advocating for justice for Black people and still being Christian. Right. I can be at a, you know, I can be around conservatives who think nothing needs to change and that there are no problems. And I can still be a Christian. Right. I can participate in politics and still be a Christian. I can rap and still be a Christian. I can write books or author things or have a podcast. We, we try to like the world tells us we need to compartmentalize everything. Right. Like a lot of us, most of us adults, we live our entire lives and then we we go to work and we're managers. But there's there's no Christian before us managing. Right. We become executives, but we're not Christian before we're executives. We become athletes. We become entertainers. And we start to lose our identity because whatever you start to get traction on, whatever we start to get attention through, whatever we start to get likes and comments and responses to, we start to get our identity and what other people acknowledge about us. Right. So like you'll even see some of the people you follow on social media. The one thing they have that goes viral. Now they try to do that for the next three years. And then you you could have liked them before that was like, that's like the worst thing you've ever done. But now they keep repeating it. Right. And it just keeps going and going because the way that we should be looking at the world, the way that we should be establishing who we are should be through our faith. Right. We should expect the world to be confused. We should expect people not to know where to go. If you have no source of truth, then you have no compass. You have no direction. So like we shouldn't be confused when people are going everywhere. But what you can't do is let it confuse you. Right. The context in which you look through the world should be based on the experiences that God gave you, the gifts that God gave you, the family that God gave you, the upbringing, the geography that God gave you. And your identity should always be looked at through the context of Christ. So it's taken me such a long time to die, to to separate being black from being Christian. Being black is a part of my culture. Being black is a part of my ethnicity. I'm actually black and Jamaican, which most people don't know, two completely different cultures. We're the same color, but trust me, my grandmother on one side does not act like my grandmother on the other side. Just like people might have like a German grandmother and an Italian grandmother. They're not the same. Right. The cultures are different. So the things that God put in us and that put that he puts in our lives and the experiences we get to have. Right. That's what makes us who we are. So we now especially we have too much access to information. There are too many people talking at us constantly constantly. And telling us what to believe and telling us what to be offended by and telling us what direction we should go in when what we need to do is just center ourselves. Right. And say, God, I find my identity in you. So I find my identity in you. So what do you want me to do? Right. So I get asked the question a lot of times, like, what can we do? Like, what do we do to combat racism? First of all, I'm going to tell you, do what's on your heart. Right. Like I I can't tell everyone in here a thing that they should go do, because I think all of you are a specialized part of the body and God has given you something to do individually. So when all of you do what you're made to do, then the body is functioning. But I can't tell everyone in here to go be a hand. That's what the world does. The world tells everybody to do the same thing. So it's like rinse and repeat and you'll be successful. That's not what God told us. Right. God said he made you for a purpose. He knew, you know, he knows how many days you're going to live. He knows what he's giving you. Right. He knew you before your parents decided to give you a name. So, like, when we're seeking what to do, why not ask the person who designed and created us? Right. Because Todd left the NCAA and came to camp. Why someone with an accounting background, I believe, that used to do consulting that wound up at the NCAA would come be the executive director of a camp. In the Northwoods of Wisconsin, that's not the path you think somebody would go when they, when, they, when they got out of college. I didn't think that's where he would be when I met him on a plane. When I met him, he was working at the NCAA, right? So, but at the end of the day, it's the experiences that he had in his life, and it was him listening to God and saying, God, where do you want me to go? And he asked that question, and then God gave him confirmation, right? Sometimes we don't get answers because we don't ask. So, when it's like, where do I want to go to college, And it's like, God, where do you want me to go to college? Those are two different questions. It's where do I want to go? And God, where do you want me to go? Me and my wife were going through the process of of relocating. We felt like we had ended our season in Delaware and it was like, okay, where we're going. So I told my wife, I said, you can pick anywhere in the country. So I work remotely. My office is in Colorado. I actually commute back and forth to work on a plane um, normally once or twice a month. But I told my wife, I said, all of our moves up until this point have been because of me. We lived in South Carolina because I was in the Navy. We moved to Philadelphia because of my job. We moved to Colorado when I got promoted to be an executive. We moved back to Delaware because our house was here. So I said, you get to pick where we go. And my wife couldn't pick. My kids love the beach. That's why they haven't swam in a lake because they're, they're East Coast uh, beach people. Um, so my, my kids love the beach. And so the first thing my wife was like, well, you know what? Let's go to Florida. Right, let's go to Florida, it's warm, we don't have to worry about snow anymore, right? The, the state taxes are low, property taxes are low, let's move to Florida, let's buy, let's buy a house there. And we're like, oh, let's go to Texas. Let's so my wife's just looking at everything in her mind, but nothing that we decided felt right. Not everything just felt weird. It just and so we were and so we sat there and we're like, why do why do none of these decisions? Like it's not about the money, the cost of living is fine. That's not what's driving the discussion, right? But but then we asked ourselves, we are like, okay. Like, God, where do you want us to go? Because us moving, right, God giving me a job that offers me the flexibility to live anywhere I want, as long as I'm, you know, as long as I don't mind how long my drive is to the airport. So instead of, you know, we couldn't come to a decision thinking of what we wanted to do. So it was like, God, where do you want us to go? And then there were so many things that God did that just continued to show us and confirm, like Todd talked about, that that's where we wanted to go. The neighborhood that we picked, one of my, my, my mentor from college lives in the community next door. I didn't know any of this as I was buying the house. Right. The pastor from the church where I got saved when I was an atheist lives next door to my house. I built my house right here. He lives right here next to me. My, my best friend, my brother's pastor lives on the other side of the pool in my neighborhood. And so, like, we decided to live there, and then God was like, yep, 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 yep. Yeah. like, n- down to the location where I picked to build a house that had never existed before. And he gave us that confirmation, but it's not where we wanted to go. So when people ask me, like, why are you going to North Carolina? I'm like, because God told us to, right? But it's trying to find, like, God, what do you want me to do, right? Trying to find our identity, and okay, you gave us these resources, you gave us the, the, you gave us the time, you gave us the freedom and the flexibility, so what do you want us to do? And then he, lead, he, you know, he leads our direction and then he also gives us confirmation so that we're not in a space where we're questioning or wondering what's really happening. And I think like you're in a position in your life and a time in your life where you have to start making a lot of decisions. Right. Like you're going to transition into being an adult. Right. Like, um, you know, the studies showed the majority of people who are Christian, they stop being Christian when they leave. And I told Justin, I said, I love that there's a program like this that actually invests in allowing kids to explore their own faith. Right. Like you need your own faith. Your identity can't be rooted in the fact that your parents made you go to church because at some point they're not going to make you go to church anymore. because They can't unless you all want to live with them forever. Um, you know, it's cheaper. But at some point you'll get a roommate. Um, so but, it, but it's things like that, that you start to make those decisions. So having the time and the opportunity to be introspective and being in a state in the world right, where we've been isolated, like most of our extracurricular activities have been canceled. Most of our uh, like our hobbies have been canceled. Right. This guy was very upset about them losing the national championship. Right. So he missed all of the tournaments. Right. I know so many people. And so I, I preached a message during um, during the, the, the Holy Week leading up to Resurrection Sunday. And I'm like, it's funny because to me, it just seems like God is resetting the world. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, you know, when you get the download on your, your new phone update and it takes in all the data, but it's like it's not going to kick in until you reset the phone. Right. I feel like we've all been receiving stuff. Right. We've all been given more gifts. We've all been given talents. We've all been we've all been kind of upgraded to a certain point. But we never reset because we were always busy. We were always doing something. We didn't spend time with our families. We didn't spend time on our word. We didn't spend time seeking after God because there was so much stuff to distract us. And then all of it just stopped. Right. And in the midst of everything stopping and everything being quiet and everyone being at home and everybody focusing on the media and on social media, the world goes into like racial bias overload, right? And there's this successive events that occur that now have the world at a point to where it's looking at a problem that's 400 years old and saying, how does that still exist? Like, how is racism so prominent? Like, how is it just so evident that this can happen in the middle of the street? Or, you know, this woman can just exaggerate her voice and call the police on somebody in Central Park. And then these guys just feel comfortable to track somebody down hit them with their vehicle and then shoot them. They shoot Ahmaud Arbery in the middle of the street. Right. And we watched this from the beginning of May when it was Ahmaud Arbery. And then and then, you know, the uh, right after the holiday there was or the day of the holiday, we saw George Floyd. And then the world just continued to, to, to look. Right. And it was. And then now people are struggling with identity. Like, what do I want to associate with? Right. It feels weird to associate with the police. And actually, I told Todd, I said, the irony of me coming to camp to get away from activism and going to protests, I spend my entire week with police officers. That's God, right? Like, literally, I mean, the whole time, every all this week at night, I've been sitting at a, at a fire having conversations with, well, with a retired police officer who still does some stuff and an active duty detective from right outside of Minneapolis. Two families. So. Like, that's what God had me to do. But even coming and being able to share with them and having real conversations and to discuss, like, that was even more confirmation, again, from God when you're obedient and you go somewhere and he works it out. But And the one police officer said to me, he goes, Todd, that was so healing for me to be able to have this conversation. But it's when we know who we are, right? Like, the fact that I can, and I told Todd, the fact that I can listen long enough to someone's opinion or perspective without being offended, Right. The fact that I can be humble enough to love somebody and understand that they may not know, they may not see something from my perspective or they may just not have experienced something that I experienced. Like that's that's a gift from God, because most of us like we're we're kind of stuck in our own perspective. Right. But the the greatest thing that, you know, it's a simple commandment to love your neighbor. But loving your neighbor requires a lot of humility. Right. Putting someone else's opinion above your own. Requires a lot of humility. And most of us fail at it miserably every day. And Facebook is the perfect example of it. And I know that yeah, that's old people stuff. You guys don't do Facebook, um, but, you know, TikTok or Snapchat or whatever else. Right. Because we attack opinions we don't agree with. How is that loving? Right. Are we trying to educate people? Do we actually think they have a flawed perspective and we want them to change that perspective? So it doesn't so that they don't go and you know, walk this road of life during, you know, going in the wrong direction or we just like to hear ourselves talk. Right, And I'm guilty of it. That's why I deleted my apps when I got here. There was too much stuff going on and everybody's arguing about Juneteenth, so I'm like, I'm going to enjoy camp. I just deleted all the social media apps off my phone, because I have like 12 Facebook pages and three Instagram accounts and a lot of stuff. So it's like trying to manage all of that and the arguments and the debates and everything back and forth. It's like, I just needed peace. I just needed time. And then Todd asked me to come talk about racism. Uh, (laughs) So, again, what you want to do and what God actually has you to do. So, I mean, I, I, to me, it's like there, there are uncomfortable conversations that need to be had, right? I think there, there are so many people who follow my music or follow my podcast that are young people who live in areas where there aren't a lot of minorities who, like, reach out to me and ask me questions on social media or their parents are reaching out to me, asking me questions because their kids do. I think we have to be willing to be quiet enough, right, and be humble enough to listen without being offended. And we can't be afraid to ask a question. Right. Like there's things that we don't know, like consultants, trainers, everybody says you don't know what you don't know. Right. And what I don't want young people to feel, what I especially don't want the young Christians to feel is like to feel like and I I won't say who, but I was I was speaking with somebody and it kind of really like it it burdened my heart because she was like, I don't understand. And I feel like like I feel like I don't care enough, like I'm not connected enough. She's like, I feel like I'm racist. And I'm like, I don't want anybody to feel that way. Like, I don't want anybody to feel like because you don't feel the way I feel that you are racist. That's ridiculous. I have a wife and two daughters. There are things my wife and my daughters will experience that I will never experience. It doesn't make me sexist because I don't understand what they're going through. Right. Like we had to go to the store today. I don't understand that. That's not a thing that I, I, I. Yeah, I don't understand. I don't have to. Right. So in that. But the way that. But again, because the world is telling us what to be offended by, because the world's like, if you're not grabbing a picket sign and going out there and marching, then like you don't care. But there is a difference between care and guilt and shame and conviction. So what I want to talk about is the conviction. When you see something wrong in the world, regardless of what it is, and God puts a conviction on your heart, then you do something about it. Right. Like, and everybody may be different. Right. I know people who are advocates for for children with disabilities. I know people who are advocates for women who are caught in sex trafficking. I know people who are like I know people who are advocates for education. I know people who are advocates for social justice. Everybody doesn't have the same gift. We can't all be out protesting for everything that we think ails the world every day, because people got to go to work. People got to sleep like there's other things to do. So that's why I always say, like, I think the we is what makes us lazy. Right. Because if if you're like, you know, like (laughs) we had one person that like we are standing here, one person started the fire. Right. So it's like I'm going to get the fire started. I started it. The rest of us sat here. We did not start a fire. A person started a fire. We all get to enjoy it. We all get to get the mosquitoes to go away because of the smoke. But when each individual does what they're made and, and what they're made, crafted and gifted to do, like that's when the body of Christ is most effective. Right. Because what the world tells you to do is like you have to wait in line and like then we're all going to move. But when you understand absolute truth, when you know that God made you for a specific thing, like what burdens you about the world that you see and the people that I mentor. And I'm like, what is your calling? And No one like 50 year olds, 60 year olds, people who are pastors like I know people who are pastors. I can't answer me a question of what is your calling in a short sentence. Right. And I like to define calling like what is the burden that God puts on your heart that you want to change in the world? To me, that's your calling. Right. Like when you see something and you're like, I want to make that different and you don't know why. Like that's God. And then I feel like God gave you every gift that you need. Right. There's not one gift. Like, yes, I can rap. Yes, I can write. But I can also lead large teams of people. I can run logistics on a global level. So it allows me to run a nonprofit organization by myself because I use every gift that I have. I don't just use music, right? I don't just use public speaking. I don't just use writing. I don't, I use everything I have. And I said, God, what do you give me a burden for? And honestly, it sounds weird, but God gave me a burden for generations that are leaving the church because the church refuses to address racism. Most of the people who listen to my podcast are agnostic or atheists. Most of them come from two family households. Most of them are white and most of them grew up in Christian households. And now they don't believe in Jesus. And, you know, what's funny. I realized that it was because the same reason I didn't. It was the hypocrisy. There was pain that I saw in the world that the church didn't address. And it was because the church wasn't moving like Christ. So, like, people and everybody and even the Dalai Lama is quoted saying he was like, I, you, know, was the, you know, it was Gandhi. He was like, I love your Christ. I just don't like your Christians. Right. So it's like when you start to when we start to move in that direction, when we start to want to take action, when we start to feel a conviction and I'm not talking about guilt, I'm not talking about shame, I'm not talking about sadness. I mean, the conviction that you feel in your spirit as a believer that God is is unsettling something in you because something is wrong at the situation you're looking at. And then how do you address it as an individual? Right. That's what I want to empower everybody to do. Follow the conviction in your heart. Right. You should be aligned with God. You read your word. You study. You meditate. You pray. You say, God, what do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? And he'll lead you. And it may look different than what somebody else is doing. Right. But I don't want I I don't want anyone feeling like everybody. <laughs> It's supposed to be a social justice warrior. Like some people have to be education warriors. Some people need to be immigration warriors. Some people need to be lawyers that handle immigration issues when you're trying to bring refugees into the country that, you know, that have issues and religious persecution. There's a lot of things that Christians need to be doing because the world is broken, right? So we get so distracted, we get so overwhelmed because there's these, these obstacles that we see in front of us that we think are so large that we can't make a difference. But you can make a difference if you do specifically what God made you for. Right? Like, when you sit in your quiet space, when you see the state of the world, there is something that your spirit mourns for more than everything else. And it's not because it's what on, what's on the news. It's not what's popular this week. I had an older friend of mine that texted me, and, like, he's starting to get involved in social justice. His son is, is half white and half Hispanic. And he was like, how have people moved on already? He's like, how are we done? How are we? He was like, what's going on with this trial? What's going on on that trial? Like, if you want to know, you to have to go find it, because we've already moved on, right? Now we're talking about Chaz and you know demilitarize, and we're talking about defunding the police. Like, how many people have you, even you seen in the last month that just went from emotional compartment to another one, right? So like, we were you know we were mad about George Floyd, and now we're mad about the police, and now we're mad at people shooting at the police, and then we just keep we keep moving, and that doesn't actually accomplish any change. It doesn't get anything done. Right? I love that I've been able to connect and impact as one person. So I'm sitting here talking to all of you. I talk to like 50 people on staff and I'm walking through the line getting my food and people are in the kitchen listening to a podcast. That was me having a conversation in the car by myself because this is what God put on my heart. Right? And I think the people who need to hear it will hear it. I think the people who need to respond will respond. And I hope to speak to someone's conviction. Not their emotion. emotion. Right. People will get angry and they'll donate some money. <laughs> right. People will get sad and they'll go to one protest. But like I made a movie about Trayvon Martin in 2014. I've been doing activism since 2002. So it's like I've gotten tired. So like I've, I've been to demonstrations about these bodies that have been in the streets for years. And it's like it didn't change. There were people who got it, you know, who got all into it. and was wearing T-shirts and everything else when Trayvon Martin got shot. That was in 2013 was seven years ago. Most of you probably know who he is. You were in elementary school when it happened. Right. And now we're at we're, we, we've got another wave that's coming across. So when it like so that's the I don't know, like that's what I wanted to to share with you guys. Like I, I want to encourage you to to like ask questions. And if anybody has a question right now, I'll answer it um, or I'll try to answer it to the best of my ability. But we're, we've we've been ignoring our convictions because there's so much around us telling us what to be offended by and how to respond and what should we do um, that as Christians, since we, we have access to the, to the source of truth, it's like, okay, God, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to respond? What do you want me to get involved in? How do you want me um, to, to act? Because if you jump out there and try to do this in your own strength and it's not what you were called to do, you were, it's, you're not going to last. Like you can't do this. I can't do this in my own power. I get tired of doing this like it's it's stressful, it's straining, it's draining, it's emotional, it's psychological, like it brings up like horrible memories. Um, but like every time I do it, like God gives me like a source of peace and release or Todd will just say, hey, this one person shared this. And then God just fills me up and like overflows whatever I felt like I poured out. But if it wasn't that I know people who burn out. I know people who go from one direction completely into the other one because they they thought it was going to give them some sense of relief, fill some kind of void, feel some kind of vacancy, and it doesn't. Because as Christians, <laughs> right, there's there's the, the Spirit of God should not lie to you. Right? There He is the source of truth, and that's what we should be that's what we should be following, right? There's so many things that we follow now. <laughs> right? We follow influencers, we follow corporations, we follow brands, we You know, we follow hashtags, but we need to we need to follow Christ more intently um, and ask, what can I do right in the space that you give me conviction in my heart? And then how do I respond? Um, And we can't respond to everything. It's not it's not possible. It's not reasonable for anybody to put that expectation on you. Um, You have to you have to look to God and ask him what you know, what what requirement he needs you to satisfy, because the world doesn't know what you were built for. They didn't make you. God did. So when you, you know, you go to the manufacturer when you want to know how to operate and get the best use out of the equipment, right? So God made you. So that's who we should be, who we should be reaching out to and trying to connect with to understand how we should respond, where we should go, where we should put our time, where we should put our talents, um, and then how we, how we individually can change the world. People feel like one person can't change the world, but we all go to school and study individuals who made significant changes, right? We read the Bible and we see individuals who made significant changes. Um, so just know that there is, there is significant power in you in the way that God made you, um, and you're unique and you have a unique gift and a unique calling that God needs you to fulfill, to make the kingdom complete, to have the body of Christ fully working. Um, so don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to do it. It's going to feel different. It's going to feel weird. It's going to be uncomfortable. Um, but it's it's rewarding more than anything, anything that I can imagine um, or anything that I've experienced personally. But so I'm gonna I'm gonna stop talking. Um, yeah. And then uh, if anybody has a question or anything, then I'll answer it. Yes. I tell a lot of people if you're comfortable, you're doing something wrong. And I know that sounds like harsh kind of <laughs> kind of advice because there like there are certain things that I desire that I know that I want, right? So, and at least with me, like God normally introduces something to me that I am not thinking of, right? That like wasn't in my plan whatsoever. And <laughs> Robin's nodding very hard. Um, and normally, and, and me and my wife joke about it, it's like these really Jesus moments is what I call it, because it's, it's almost like objectionable, right? Like when you first hear it, you're like, no, like, because it's so, it's so abnormal, you know you didn't think it, right? So for instance, and it's like most people are like, I don't like giving people anything. I'm very stingy, right? Like I grew up poor. I like my own stuff. I like to collect shoes, right? Like I collect watches. Like I like, I like my stuff. I feel like I work hard. I want to have it. So, like, it still throws my wife off when I'm like, like, I I just did it a couple weeks ago. I'm like, hey, there's some kids across the street from us. There's a single mom. Like, I want to give them $300 to go get some shoes because they really love playing basketball. And my wife just looked at me like, who are you? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, that's what I feel like I want to do. And then on the way here, I got a text message from that mom. and And she said, she was like, thank you for what you did. And and whatever else. And she said, my son actually took the other shoes that he had and went through the neighborhood and gave them to the other kids. Because now that he had one good pair, he didn't want somebody else not having shoes. Like even me saying that right now, but that's not me. Like I'm not the one that's like, even getting that response is weird to me. So it's like when you, when you understand, first of all, when you understand God, right. And the fact that, you know, and just The way that he operates, the things that he commands us to do and the way that he commands us to leave to live. But it's more of it's like the the spiritual feeling of you can feel your flesh pushing against it. Right. Like your logic, your understanding, your desire, something in you is fighting against this idea that just fell into. I'm going to call it your spirit, but it goes from your spirit into your mind. But everything else in you is like, nope, 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 that's a bad idea. Um, so and, you know, and it's, it's kind of weird to describe it that way because we also have very bad ideas. <laughs> right. But um, but we normally rationalize our own bad ideas. Right. We can feel like, well, no, you know, if we if I did it that way, then that would make sense. And we can we kind of logically deduce it. But um, just over time for me, like trusting God and knowing how I felt, in the moment where like i when you know like when i when i heard like when i kind of heard god's idea over mine and then over time it just became more evident like this isn't me right like that's not something i want to do so it, i mean and i so i said that it takes a long time right it takes it takes time and process to start to understand like that isn't me second guessing myself that isn't right it's trusting god and then for me it was god confirming And so that's the other thing I would add. Right. Like me and my wife were like, well, we feel like God's calling us to North Carolina for me to pick a house in a neighborhood that I didn't plan on moving into. Circumstances led me like the place we went to go look was closed for no apparent reason. And the person I scheduled an appointment with didn't come. So even me moving to North Carolina, I tried to go to North Carolina the way I wanted to go. Right. We had looked at a house. We had looked at a neighborhood. And when we got there, it was closed. And then somebody recommended we go somewhere else. And then I pick a lot. So we're prayerful. We pick a lot. And not a lot is surrounded by other pastors who do the same kind of ministry and outreach that I did. So even though we were kind of, you know, it's not and I don't want to make it seem like we're just like, hey, we're going right. Like it's there's trepidation through the entire process because you're like, if this isn't God, right, like this is a big move to go to a different state if it's not God. So for me, it's when you move in that direction of faith, God gives you confirmation. Um, like Todd talking about him getting an email, you know, a message from from Justin that just happens to have them on the front of the brochure. God kind of gives you that confirmation. And then once you start getting those confirmations after you felt God speak to you, then you start know that you, you kind of, it's kind but you start to understand his voice, right? And like what he says and how he speaks. And it just it takes time. And I, I thank God that he confirmed his word right biblically, like in real life, because if not, it, it's it's difficult to kind of navigate it. So and when I was younger, it was a lot harder. Right. Just because I had so many more distractions and there was so many things I didn't understand, even about just the nature of God or even what God wanted me to do. Right. So it's easy. It's even harder to try to understand if you're if you're doing the right thing when you don't exactly know what God has called you to do. Does that help at all? Okay. Yes. So my mom found out about that when she listened to my podcast like earlier today Um, because I didn't share it. Right. Like growing up, we were taught to be afraid of the police. Right. To keep your hands at 10 and 2. Don't talk back to an officer. Right. Mm -hmm. Make eye contact and all that other stuff. But that was about it. Right. So Growing up in a household, even though my mom was remarried, she was still pretty much a single mom because he wasn't our father. Um, and I and I never had a good relationship with my with my dad until I was like 18 years old, which I'll tell that I'll tell the story about that in a second. But what um, but my mom like her taking care of me and my brother by herself and like working multiple jobs. And it was almost one of those things like you didn't want to add anything on top of it. So it's like I didn't want to add like my fear on top of her already, you know, struggling to try to take care of us by ourselves. So like me and my brother just kept a lot of stuff to ourselves um, and we just internalized it. And I didn't have like uncles or or anybody around because we moved to another state. So we were living in Tennessee and like I didn't, you know, and and I can't even remember sharing it with anybody. Right. It was just like it happened and I internalized it and I was angry and it made me angry for a very long time. It made me angry for like 10, 11 years after that. Um, and it still <laughs> can make me angry to this day, but, um, but no, I didn't. But, um, so when my father, like my mentor, who was my pastor, when I got saved in college, encouraged me to like, you should go spend some time with your dad. Um, and at the time I was going to North Carolina a and I was going to school in Greensboro, North Carolina, and my dad was stationed at the Pentagon. Um, so he was in Northern Virginia. He was like three or four hours away. So I started taking the time to drive up, to go meet with my father. So, and me and my father look exactly alike. Uh, which was weird because growing up in my family, I didn't look like anyone in my family because I looked like my dad. So my brother looked like my mom. And then we were around my mom's family. So my even growing up, my my family, my family used to joke and stuff that I was adopted. Um, and I wasn't a part of the family because I had different complexion. I was lighter. Um. But so one of the one of the times I was visiting my dad and my dad was an officer in the Air Force at the time. So my dad's always lived like upper middle class. He's in this really nice neighborhood um, in northern Virginia. And we took, he was driving, he had a Range Rover, uh, HSC, uh, with the, with the V8. So it's any, any of the guys who like, cause he's not as like, so like the very, very expensive Range Rover. So we left his house and we went to anyone who knows what Range Rover, uh, suspension, if you can't replace one tire. So he had actually got a nail or something in one tire. So we had to go get like $5,000 worth of tires because you have to change all the tires at the same time. The tread has to exactly match on a Range Rover for the traction control and all that stuff to work. So he's angry, obviously, because he got to spend that much money for a nail. Um, and so we dropped the car off. Um, I think it was it like, BJ's. There was a BJ's around the corner from his house, which is, like, Sam's Club or Costco. Um, and so he's getting, the, they're putting the tires on his car, and then we walk back home. So we're walking back to his house, and we're on the right side of the street, and there's um, two older white ladies walking towards us. Um, they're, you know, their husbands were t- tired. There were widows, probably in their, their probably late 70s, maybe early 80s. They were walking toward us um, and me and my dad are walking down towards them. And then as we got closer, they crossed the street. And so my dad just looked at me and he was like, he was like, I can't believe they did that. And like for me, it was normal. So it wasn't even a process that like I would have crossed the street if they didn't. Right. Like and then he just he just looked at me and he said, you know, what's crazy? He said, I shovel both of their driveways. He said, "Because their husbands were, air, my dad was in the air force, so their husbands were retired air force guys. So when their husbands passed, my dad would always go out when it was snowing, and he would shovel their their driveway and wave at them. But they were like, when they just saw me, they just saw another black guy. They didn't even see my face, and they crossed the street. Um, and even in that, and I mean, in his, and even in that moment, like my dad's advice to me was, it doesn't matter what you accomplish or what you own, they will always see you as an N word. That was my and I was 19, 20 years old. Um, so, yeah, that, that was a bad lesson. Uh, but that's the one that's the one kind of exchange I had with my father about about race. Yes. Did you have a question? Sorry. All right. All yeah. right. So when I was a freshman in college, I had um, like in the beginning of the, my first semester or when I was finishing high school, I started having problems with my knees. Um, so I played basketball a lot growing up. Um, wouldn't be able to tell. But when I graduated from the eighth grade, I was four foot eleven. I was very short. Um, and doctors actually told my mom when I was a kid that I was going to be a dwarf and I wouldn't be taller than five feet. So at the end of eighth grade, I was four eleven. But when I started ninth grade, I was five ten. So I grew like 10, almost 11 inches in one summer, um, which really messed up my knees. If you think about a, and it, and there's another like spiritual component to it. My great grandmother, who was the prayer warrior of our family, prayed against the doctors who said that I was going to be a dwarf. And what she did is she brought me into her house. And this is a cultural thing. She had me grab the door frame and she brushed the bottom of my feet and basically said his feet will touch this floor. When I was like a little kid, I mean like really, really small. And when I and I kid you not, when I grew that summer, I could touch the door frame. Um, and I've grown like three or four inches since then. So I grew that much. And so my knees were really jacked up. They um, When my senior year of high school, they were, they were thinking about trying. I did some physical therapy and stuff like that. Um, I did not go to college when I graduated from high school. I had no intention of going to college. I only went to follow my girlfriend. So I didn't go to college after high school. My wife is a year younger than me. Um, So I went to college. I graduated in 2000. I didn't go to college until 2001. Um, So I went to college and I was on the third floor of my dorm and it got to the point to where I could not walk up the stairs to my room. So they moved me to the basement. Um, So I was in the basement and I was always in pain. My knees were always locking up. And the person who's my best friend to this day, I call him my brother. He was going to a Bible study and he said, well, we're going to a Bible study. He was like, there's a guest speaker that's coming um, and he's, you know, he's supposed to. He's going to be praying for healing and all that other stuff. So you're coming with us. And I'm like, I'm not going, Mind you, I this, I'm not going anywhere with you people. You're all insane. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to your cult meeting. Like, no, thank you. Um, and so, not, needless to say, most of my friends in college were on a football team. So I couldn't physically resist them with bad knees. And they were like, you can either go willingly or we're going to like fold you into a ball and you're coming either way. They're like, you can't run from us. Your knees are messed up. Um, so we went, we went to the Bible study and I'm sitting there like I'm in the back, right? And I'm, you know, they're singing songs and praying and the guy's preaching and I'm looking like, this is a bunch of nonsense, right? Like I saw this growing up, nobody ever got healed, nobody was ever blessed, right? And so I'm sitting there and then he makes the call and he was like, you know, I, I want people to come up, you know, if you, if you need healing, I didn't, I didn't get up. My friends got me up and took me to the front of the line and I'm standing there and the, the, the preacher's going down the line and he's praying for people. And he's praying and he's praying and he gets to the person to the left of me. um, And he starts praying and I fell to my knees and I couldn't move. So I fell to my knees and I physically couldn't move, like I couldn't stand up. And then so he stood in front of me and I couldn't hear him. I don't know what he said. I couldn't hear anything that he said. Um, The only thing I heard was a voice that said, why do you persecute me? It's the only thing I heard. And um, and I'm sitting there and I'm on my knees. I can't physically move. And there's tears coming out of my face um, that are like soaking my shirt. But I'm like, you know, like the emotional, like jerk of crying, like I didn't feel like I was crying. Um, and then he got done praying and he moved and I still couldn't hear when he moved. And then all of a sudden I could hear. And then it was kind of like a weird moment. And then I kind of stood up and I turned around and I walked back to the back of the room. Didn't pay any attention to it. I'm like, yeah, I must have, like, something's going on. Like, you know, <laughs> starting questioning. I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm having a problem right now. Um, but then the next, and so I, you know, my friends, and my friends were just kind of looking at me, like, what well, just happened? Um, nobody really said anything, nobody. And so I woke up the next morning on a Thursday, and I got out of bed. And then I got dressed, and I was walking out the building, and I started to walk up the stairs. And then as I was walking up the stairs, I was running up the stairs. You know how you kind of, like, quick run up a, And then I noticed I'm like, I just ran up the stairs and I kind of paused and I was like, uh, like what just happened? So I went back down the stairs. I went to my room um, and God knows how he makes you. Um, I'm a very skeptical person. Right. So I was like, oh, so my knees feel better today. All right. So I actually threw my school, my my books, my books, I'm "I'm not going to class today. It's like eight thirty in the morning. I played basketball from eight thirty in the morning until it got dark. Until like nine o'clock at night. Other than drinking water and going to the bathroom, I didn't eat. I didn't do anything else because I loved playing basketball growing up. Um, so I played basketball all day, even dunked. I had I, had, I like I don't think I'd ever dunked. So I was like, I not only did I my knees were better, I had better knees. Um, so when I played basketball all day, and I did that on Thursday and then Friday. I didn't go to class. Eight o'clock in the morning till nine o'clock night. Saturday I played basketball from eight o'clock in the morning to nine o'clock at night, and then on Sunday morning when my friends came to my room to ask me if I was going to church, I was already dressed right and so even that was an experience for me that like god was real but i still wasn't christian cuz i wasn't following christ like i knew god was real and it was through process like through the rest of my life and studying god's word and i had already studied the philosophy of religion so like as i started to follow christ more intently um, then like my faith grew from there. But like shortly after that, I think I got, I, you know, I kind of, I gave my life to Christ and I say that, I don't want to say that flippantly, but <laughs> because of what happened in my life after that, I knew that, you know, I wasn't mature enough um, to understand the commitment that I was making. Um, but yeah, like maybe within a month after that, I got baptized and then I was like, I became a Christian rapper after I got saved. Um, and then started doing Christian hip hop, and I was out like ministering and performing to people, and kids were getting saved, and like I didn't even know Jesus, right? Like I just knew I just knew God, and I was like, all right, like God, I'm with you. And then I was learning more about Christ, um, but that's that's how I came back to Christ. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I guess you see like in the videos from the pro- protest of like white people standing for black people, and so like, I guess my question is, like, how do we be allies, but also, like, not overuse our whiteness and, like, let black people use their voices? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Uh, and it's, and like you said, it's, I think you kind of answered the question in your statement, right? As you were trying to, to materialize it, because, well, like, I've been at some protests, and I've seen that. Like, I've seen, like, I've had walls of, like, you know, white men and women who stand in front of us because they feel like the police won't hit them um and then basically they hand the megaphone to like the organizer and let the organizer speak um i actually wrote an article and if and if you know anybody writes my name down go to my website i wrote an article called how to use your advantage um and it's actually about you know it's about privilege in general right because white privilege is one form of privilege in america i used to be four i'm now 6 2 and so i actually wrote it from the perspective of someone who used to be short who is now tall Right. Like it's it's to, it's, a, it's a privilege to be tall when you're in a grocery store because you don't need anyone's help to grab stuff off of a top shelf. Um, but the reality is, it's whatever privilege you have. Right. You humble yourself and you use it for the benefit of the least of those amongst you. Right. So whether it's the fact that, you know, um, like I know people, if you know that you can deescalate a situation, right, like if you see somebody being mistreated and you know that you can report it. Um, even if it's privilege, like if you if your father's a police officer or your uncle is a lawyer, right? Like the connections that you have using those connections to help people who don't have them um, But you said it before but letting them speak Right, so there's like Todd has access Todd has like he allowed his platform and he let me speak so that's one way that Todd or Fort Wilderness right now is using the privilege and the, you know and even the ability that they have to allow somebody else to speak um, and I think that's what it is. You can help kind of get people to the front, but once they're there, let them talk, right? Because then, like, don't talk over them, don't talk for them. Um, and the one thing I would say is that people are always like, um, it, it kind of got annoying to me after a while when everybody's response, like, anytime something happens in national media, people text me and they're like, "Roy, I'm praying for you." And I had to actually had to tell people, I'm like, "Stop saying you're praying for me. Pray with me. Because saying you're praying for me tells me that I have a problem that you don't." Right. So if this is our problem, you're not praying for me. You're praying with me because I've been praying for this problem <laughs> to go away. I've been praying for the, the, this sin and this brokenness and this division to go away. So pray with me. Right. Like and so it's because it's not like you're you're a part of trying to do something. Right. So it's um, it's like empathize with me. You don't have to be in my shoes, but we can all pray um, for something to change. Don't just pray for the people who are being impacted. Right. Because honestly, you're being impacted, too. Right, like we and we see that now. Like we're 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 all impacted at the end of the day. We're we're all made in the image of God. And anything anything, all injustice or inequality is disgrace to God. So we should do something to change it. Mm-hmm. Let's have a conversation. We had a conversation. It was a good conversation, right? Eh? Yeah. yeah. Roy, <laughs> black man or whatever, we just have a good conversation about John Piper. Let's okay, have That's all we need to do, right? And so anyway, so Roy, thank you so much for sharing. And can I can I can I add one more thing? Um, the, the, what he said about conversation, too, so the one thing I'll add is that if, if you're like, there's something that you can do, just have a conversation, right? Just, just meet with, have a discussion with somebody from a different culture, from a different, even from a different background, a different economy, a different neighborhood, right? There are subcultures within all of our cultures, whether it's, whether it's black, white, Asian, Hispanic, like, we are not the same, right? People, people in Milwaukee are not the same as people in the Northwoods, are not the same as people in Los Angeles, And when you talk about loving one another, the one thing that I've learned um, and God's been able to bless me with over time is the more that I learn about other people, the more that I can actually love them. And I can see the context and through the the stuff that they're going to. So I always I always have to be candid. Like I never really cared about immigration. Right. Because my family is Jamaican. They don't really have any problems immigrate into America. They're all they're already kind of have citizenship. And then I moved to Colorado and one of my close friends was um, he was he was he was Mexican-American and he didn't even know until he was four years old that he was born in Mexico. So his mom got pregnant in the U.S., went to Mexico to visit family and he was born in Mexico. So then his mom brought him back to the U.S., but he had a Mexican birth certificate and he didn't know that until he was in like, high school and tried to like, get a driver's license and realized he wasn't really a U.S. citizen. And so he's a dreamer, right? He's in the DACA program. And so like watching him go through, trying to get certification so he can keep working. And he was a tax paying citizen that had money. Like I started caring about immigration. One of my close friends has a special needs daughter. I started caring about people with special needs. There was a lady in our church that had, that was um, handicapped and was in a wheelchair. Now everywhere I went, I'm looking at like, cause we set up chairs at church. Now I'm in stores looking at like the width of rows and was like, I don't think Jennifer could get through here, right? Like the more, and I mean, it's crazy because the more that you love people, The more that you start to understand and care about things that affect them so not you so like and again the beauty of loving one another the beauty of loving our neighbor is when we love them we start to understand their pain we start to advocate for them we start to want them to be treated the same way that we do so be intentional about trying to love somebody who's different than you right so even if it's economy even if it's interest if it's you know different political affiliations even if it's people of different religions Right, like people, how are people supposed to love a Christ if we won't talk to anybody who's just not Christian? That's not that's not how we evangelize. And he had mentioned my my daughter waiting up for me. Um, the probably the most painful thing I've heard, um, in the last six months was because of protests and I was speaking at rallies and all that other stuff. My daughter walked up to me and she the smile on her face. My oldest daughter wants to become a lawyer, um, and she she asked me. She was like she was like, Daddy, can we get you a bulletproof vest for Father's Day? And like I kind of, I kind of smiled and was like, ah, you know, just jumped And I turned around and I immediately started to cry because my daughter wants me to be safe for Father's Day, and I did order one, right? Because I'm like, I can't, I can't turn. <laughs> like I'm going to do that. Like my my daughter's like, if you're gonna be out there talking and you say stuff people that don't agree with, and she was like, I want you to be safe, right? So like Todd said, that was that was something I never thought I would hear come out of my. My daughter's mouth. We don't have the news. My daughter does not have a social media account Um, like that's just that's my daughter reading the news. That's my daughter reading newspaper articles about stuff that's going on um, and having that concern. So and when I shared that message, (laughs) when I posted that on my I posted it on my LinkedIn, my Instagram and my Facebook page, what my daughter said to me actually hit more people's hearts than I think anything that I've ever said because I had people that was like this is it like Roy really? I'm sick of this like what do we need to do cuz they know my daughter and they know me right so it's those parts of our stories that connect people as well going to work because